all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. I'm the professor of uh, internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. We're going to be taking your calls during the hour concerning any kind of health care issues that you might have. The number to call if you'd like to reach us with those questions this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 If you're not able to call, you can always send an email to us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, a little chilly out there this morning in my neck of the woods. I ducked my head out about 15 minutes ago to look outside and uh, – uh, doesn't quite feel like uh, late spring, early summer, but of course, uh, we know that's right around the bend. A lot of rain in our forecast. Make sure just with all the rest of the rain that you've received this week, uh, keep an eye on those low-lying areas for flash flooding. Uh, certainly don't drive into any areas where you can't reliably uh, see how deep it is. You really can't judge that too much, particularly in uh, Mississippi roads and back roads uh, that we have. But hope everybody's doing well, though. Um, you know, May is a time that we can uh, usually we get out uh, to if you haven't started your gardening yet, you you probably are, are trying to do that. And it's always great here in Mississippi to, to get outside more and uh, and really uh, get your hands dirty and uh, and uh, do some exercise as well. But uh, I'd encourage you to do that. But also make sure that you think about those things since we've had a little bit cooler weather, uh, relatively speaking, than we normally do. Make sure you protect yourself against the sun uh, with sunblock appropriately. Don't want to get uh, too burned. Certainly, uh, there's a risk of skin cancer over a long-term period there. And then also for all those critters that can get at you, like mosquitoes, or if you're trouncing around in your yard, make sure you're on the lookout for things that could crawl up on you, like ticks. Um, and uh, also snakes uh, are out there, too. So just be aware of that. Um, as you're getting out and protect yourself um, as best you can. Uh, incidentally, if you listen to us regularly and maybe you catch uh, caught a part of a program and you wanted to listen in on uh, on that full conversation, if you missed out, we understand people have to sort of pop in and pop out, that you can always go to mpbonline.org, O-R-G, and search for Southern Remedy. Uh, we do archive all of our older programs, and it uh, usually takes us about 24 hours to do that. Um, but we can um, we can uh, have access to um, to those programs for you to listen to in their entirety. All right, we're going to go to our first caller. I believe it's Cat from Mobile. Good morning, Cat. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Good. What's your question this morning? 
Okay, I have a question in regards to um, fenugreek seeds. I've been doing some research about um, people using fenugreek seeds to help with their hair growth, and I've seen a lot of pros and cons in regards to um, health. Like, it, I guess if you have issues with diabetes, you probably wouldn't need to take it. And so I was wondering um, just if you had any information or knew about the health benefits or the pros and cons of fenugreek seeds. And just to precursor, yeah. I don't have any issues with diabetes. I don't have, like, any health issues like that. Right. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that's great to bring up. I'm glad you brought that up, Kat. Uh, you know, there's plenty of herbal uh, remedies and herbal medications that are out there. Fenugreek is a plant, um, and it has uh, uh, two different things that you can use, the seeds and the leaves. And mostly they use these for as a food source, as an herb in foods in, uh, in India and other surrounding areas. And it's really old. It's been used for a long time. So there are some, uh, you know, some... And it's almost like a clover look to it. Um, but there are a lot of um, different things that people have looked at for its health benefits. You mentioned a couple of them with hair growth. You do have to be careful, though. Um, and uh, for uh, if you if you're diabetic, it can uh, there is some limited data that says that it can lower blood sugar levels. So you don't want to get your blood sugar too low. Uh, but it's been it's been looked at for all kinds of things. Appetite control. And lowering inflammation in your body, helping reduce cholesterol levels. The, the, and here's the challenge with not just fenugreek, but any herbal uh, medication. Some of them we have actually have some pretty good research, and a lot of them we don't. Um, one of the things that you have to keep in mind, because a lot of research will say, well, the people in this area who eat a lot of fenugreek, they have this positive health outcome. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean the fenugreek alone is doing that. And generally speaking, most herbs that you take by themselves as a supplement for your health do not work as well as if you were cooking with them in combination with other foods. Um, and uh, those of you who have listened to us for a long time know that I'm a big proponent of the DASH diet. And the DASH diet has a lot of individual foods that people have uh, or individual substances like high calcium, uh, high potassium, low sodium, and uh, they may have isolated those individual things. We really don't see the health benefits alone from doing that. Um, that being said, I don't know of a lot of negative effects of uh, fenugreek in general. Certainly, is, as any herb uh, can do, it can um, it can interfere with some medications. So what I would do is ask your pharmacist in particular, if you're on other medications, uh, hey, is this something that is going to interfere with any of them? There are a lot of databases now that you can put those in that look at the potential side effects with other medications. And if you don't know, uh, be very careful. Take a little bit of it. Don't just jump in and eat a lot of it. Uh, and then monitor things and see what it's going to do. So that that would be my general recommendations, not just for fenugreek, but for uh, lots of different things. And, hey, if it's not going to hurt you and not going to interfere with your medications, usually that's fine if you want to take that. Okay, thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, thank you for calling. Um, incidentally, there's you know there's tons of places online that you can look for things like this. Uh, Healthline.com is one that uh, has some general information 
um, that I like to go to. And then Medscape is another one. Medscape may ask you to register, but actually there are some pretty neat tools that you can uh, you can use um, to uh, to look for those cross references um, on different things and different interactions. But you know. I, as, as we all are apt to, a lot of times we'll say, hey, if I just take, you know, if I eat three pounds of fenugreek a day or if I eat three pounds of this, that's going to cure my all my ills. And usually you don't you don't see that. Um, what is healthy is certainly looking at areas that eat really healthy. Um, the, the blue zones or one of these, uh, you know, areas of the world that where people tend to live a lot longer and live healthier in those zones. Uh, and when you look at what they eat, there are some similarities with usually plant-based diets, um, locally eaten, um, uh, a broad range of things that they eat seasonally. They're very active physically. Uh, they don't eat a lot of meat. If they do, it's usually fish or lean meats. Uh, the, all their fat sources tend to come from plants, so that's usually oil, uh, plant oils and uh, nuts. And they have very rich social structures. So, in other words, most of the elderly live with their families. Uh, later in life, they have all these different social structures that they have to help support each other. So, uh, those are the things we know that work really well. A lot of the places we live and all the situations we live, even in the South, we don't have a lot of those positives. But we do have a lot of them. And certainly in Mississippi in particular and the surrounding states, there's a lot of opportunities to grow your own food if you have the space. It doesn't really take that much space to do that, uh, and those can have positive health benefits. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning answering your calls about any kind of health care question that you might have. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, COVID, we, you know, just about every program, we at least have somebody ask about COVID or we mention a couple of things. Still looking good in the state. Um, the data that I was looking at it yesterday on the uh, Mississippi State uh, Department of Health's website um, looks really good. Uh, we still... Uh, have some work to do worldwide. If you're keeping up with the news, you know that in certain parts of the world, there's certainly huge numbers of COVID cases. India's in particular getting hit really hard in some parts of Africa as well. Um, just because we're doing well here doesn't mean that we, you know, that we have, that we're off the hook completely. We certainly need to be careful about things, but it's nice to have some of those uh, some of those limitations that we had uh, based on, on current recommendations lifted uh, right now. So certainly you can gather outside with uh, a, gr a good deal of safety, particularly if you're vaccinated. Uh, vaccines, uh, we've just seen the CDC uh, is looking at uh, um, uh, recommending the at least the Pfizer vaccine down to age 12 now. We'll probably see it down to age uh, five or even as low as two, uh, depending on what the safety data is over the next few months. So lots of good things in the future for that. But uh, certainly, if you're looking at travel, make sure you go to two places that whatever country you're going to end up in, if it's out of the country, you want to go to their website and see what kind of requirements they have on going to their country. And then you also want to be very clear about the requirements coming back into the country, which would be different. So that would be on the CDC website, and they're very specific and up-to-date about that. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls, your questions, or comments that you might have about your own health or the health of somebody that you know of. You can give us a call this morning at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or if you're not able to call, you can always send us an email. We love getting emails. We try to respond back to the individual person, but also If you give us permission, we can share those on air. Uh, The email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. I'm going to go to uh, an email right now. Um, So this first one says, my great-grandson is 16 months old and will not walk on his feet. He walks around furniture, but if walking, he walks on his knees should we be concerned. So developmental milestones in kids, uh, you know, there are, there are certain things that you attain at different time periods and um, they're not really precise. So in other words, you can't say for walking, for instance, well, you know, walking should occur between uh, like at at 10 months. Some kids are a little bit earlier than that. Some are going to be later, but generally speaking by a year of age, a child should be able to stand on his feet support his body weight, and do what we call assisted walking or cruising. So this is when they really get mobile around the furniture and they're just sort of sidestepping as they hold on to different things. Uh, Sometime between usually 12 months and 15 months is when they would be able to walk more. And then in that uh, sort of uh, first uh, full year to two years, they start to, to do more of that. And there's different milestones for different things. So this would be one of the gross uh, milestones. It doesn't mean it's uh, nasty gross. It means that gross motor, uh, the big motor groups, fine motor would be things that they do with their hands. And then there are other milestones, uh, social milestones, uh, verbal milestones that they have. So um, I, I would say this is probably a little bit too late uh, on the on the timeline. So 16 months, if we're still not able to do that cruising at least, and probably should be taking some first steps by then. They probably should be uh, checked out by their pediatrician if they haven't already. There are some uh, additional things that you can do uh, for testing, but uh, part of that exam when they wa- will be watching them, you know, how do they move from one uh, from one place to the other? And some kids may have a <clears throat> a preference for doing certain things. <clears throat> like uh, crawling over walking. Some kids just love to crawl and they don't like to walk. But if you, if you set that child up on their feet, are they able to support their weight? 
Another thing that they can do in the office is to sort of quantify that central muscle strength that it takes, that core muscle strength uh, and, and bigger muscle strength. Uh, and there's different things that they, they that, uh, different problems that could uh, crop up that might be impacting that as well. So I think 16 months, still not walking, they, that needs to come up in that regular routine visit. That's one of the reasons why we do routine visits of children uh, early on is to catch these things early. Um, a lot of people say, well, it doesn't really make a difference, does it, one way or the other? It does. Uh, we have a lot of good resources now with physical therapists, occupational therapists who specialize in younger individuals and those uh, infants and toddlers uh, to catch these kinds of things, work with parents, show them what to do at home, and develop a strategy to try to get them back uh, walking, depending on what is going on. So, uh, you know, you can't just jump to exercises that you find online without knowing exactly what's going on, because it may be some other things. I, you know, certainly don't have it not seen this this child uh, that uh, is, they were emailing about. We certainly, certainly wouldn't want to speculate, but there's all kinds of different muscular problems and neurologic problems that might be there that need to be addressed first. So uh, if you have any kind of suspicion, I would always tell families, uh, look, you know, because they usually come in, if it's nothing, if it's part of a normal development, they'll apologize. There is no reason to apologize for concerns over your child um, with delays in those types of milestones. So uh, I would I would contact them about that if we're not walking at, uh, at 16 months. This is Southern Remedy. Uh, Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Gary from Louisiana. Good morning, Gary. Thanks for calling. What's your uh, question this morning? Good morning. I have a comment. I have a daughter who's now 36 years old. Uh, was born hearing impaired, and she didn't walk until she was 17 months old, um, primarily yeah, yeah. because of balance balance issues. You know, and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, my wife was deaf, and we didn't really expect her to walk very soon because of the balance issue. Yeah, and that's one of those individual things that you are a little bit more subtle to pick up on. And I'm not sure exactly why she had, you know, hearing loss issues, but that's pretty close to the same centers, uh, you know, in the inner ear that help control balance. So that may have been related to that. Um, but um, I'm glad that uh, you said she's she's grown now. Is that right? Yeah, she's thirty six. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely grown. Okay. <laughs> well, that, yeah, and that's 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 just another example of you know some subtle things that could be picked up, and um, you know it's it's pretty. I mean, most parents, you don't want you know you want your child to be perfect. That's one of the things that we're like, oh, you know, we really want that to happen. And then when you deviate from that, sometimes you can. Um, you know, make the mistake of, of saying, well, you know, maybe we'll just watch it for a little bit longer. And as a pediatrician, sometimes we'll do that depending on when it is. But um, there can be some underlying things like you mentioned uh, with balance or it might be, uh, you know, muscular dystrophy or other neurologic problems that might be causing that. But before you, you jump to any of those, you really need that good exam. So, Gary, I'm glad that uh, that she is is doing great um, all these years later. Yeah, see, we, we expect, we're kind of expecting this because her mother's deaf, her grandparents were both deaf, so the deafness is you know, hereditary, and we kind of expected it 
But um, that's how it goes. All right. Well, thanks yep. for taking my call. Y'all have a good day. Thank you. Thank you, Gary, for listening, and thank you for the call. Yeah, hereditary um, deafness or partial deafness is fairly common. So, you know, if you have a family that has multiple members of the family that have that, you want to be on the on the lookout. The other thing that is a little, you know, most people don't think about, some hearing problems and external ear problems. So the auricle, which is the part of the ear that sticks outside of our head, that helps to collect sound and protect that airway, uh, the, the uh, external auditory canal. Um, if it's misshapen, if it's dysmorphic at birth, that can be associated with kidney problems. So, um, you know, a lot of times they'll, on those ultrasounds that they can do either before birth or uh, shortly after birth, they'll look at the kidneys to make sure that they're not um, they're not misshapen and everything's working okay. But yeah, it can run in families. So those kinds of things, because why a good family history is always important, uh, not just after you've had a baby, but, uh, beforehand. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning. The number to call if you have a question is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Going to go to another email right now. Um, this one is on scoliosis. So it says, my 15-year-old daughter was diagnosed with idiopathic scoliosis a year ago. Her curve is progressing about a degree a month. She's now at 47 degrees uh, on her curve. Uh, she has been told that surgery is inevitable and that she needs to, it needs to be done in the next few years. Obviously, we are concerned about the seriousness of the scoliosis itself, but we're also very hesitant to put her through such an invasive procedure and its consequent recovery. We just aren't sure what to do. There are no guarantees that the surgery won't leave her with more pain than she is currently experiencing. Any thoughts? Uh, scoliosis is one of those things. That, uh, basically, that's a curvature of the spine, if you're not familiar with that. And there can be different um, um, types of scoliosis. So basically, the location of it is one thing. So it can be in the upper vertebra, the thoracic vertebra, uh, vertebral bodies, there can be a curvature or the lower or lumbar, or it can be a combination of both of those. Uh, the other thing that it, that she mentioned here is the degree of curve. So the curvature is, is, is uh, uh, measured by something called a Cobb angle. And once that Cobb angle gets to about 50, uh, there's some leeway in there in the middle, sort of 40 to 45 uh, those are those are ones that impending surgery is coming up. But once it gets to about 50 degrees, that's the point where surgery is usually recommended. And the reason for that is uh, the longer you have scoliosis and if it's worsening, um, particularly through that that puberty stage where you're uh, gaining, uh, you know, gaining height. Uh, once you get past that, there's really not you know, you really have to look at how much of a curve that you have. And the optimal time to do surgery is right at the end of that growth spurt. Uh, you just don't want to do it while they're growing. Um, uh, there are lots of different things that you can do during that time period, like bracing. That's external braces that you wear that may help out. And then uh, lots of physical therapy outs, uh, exercises to help strengthen the muscles uh, around the back and uh, your core muscles of your um, um, thoracic uh, area. But once it gets to about 50, that's about the point where most orthopedic surgeons would say, okay, now's the time to do surgery. And you're right, it is a fairly um, uh, big surgery. 
depending on the, the length of vertebral bodies are involved, it can mean stabilization of those. Most patients feel much better with that. They gain a little bit of height with that too. Um, I know several people that had this done when they were between 18 and 20 years of age, including some of my patients, and they've done well long-term. We have a lot of new different ways of doing surgery. They still, some of them do have some back pain, but it tends to be mild and certainly a lot less than the back pain you would have with uh, increased curvature. Um, so I would, I would lean towards their recommendations if her Cobb angle, if the degree of curvature is 47 degrees right now and she's gaining about a degree a month, that's probably looking at surgery in the next probably a year or less. Uh, she is 15, though, so certainly they would want to make sure that her growth is uh, completed. You don't want to do that surgery before uh, her growth, um, her height growth is completed. So there's different ways of looking at that, both with x-ray and with growth velocity over time. Um, but those are my thoughts on that. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. Certainly, they're the ones that are the experts on that. But in this case, you know, scoliosis, because of the extent of it, I, you know, if you don't feel comfortable, I would certainly get a second opinion on that. And then make sure that your surgeon is very well versed in that. You know, you have sort of your your bread and butter orthopedic surgeons that fix broken bones and things like that. And then you have others that are subspecialized in different areas. And this is one particularly pediatric orthopedic surgery uh, is a specialty, subspecialty area of orthopedic surgery that you might want to look at if, if your surgeon's not uh, already uh, in that specialty. So that's my thoughts right there. Certainly you'd want to um, have lots of uh, good calcium and vitamin D uh, intake if your child does have scoliosis like this. They need to be doing that. And you certainly need to be exercising too. That's been uh, proven to help out. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy Stewart with you this morning, answering your questions, taking your comments about all kinds of different health care issues that you might have today. The number to call if you have a question is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to remedy at mpbonline. Dot org. Uh, a lot of people have some hesitation with calling in. Sometimes they're like, you know, I don't think my question really is something that uh, anybody would be interested in. It's amazing to me. Uh, well, not too amazing to me, but amazing to other people, though. Once you call in with that question, there's probably at least five people out there that have the same problem 
or maybe they uh, they have similar problems and have the same question that they need to uh, answer. So it's not just you asking a question, it's you asking a question for a lot of other people too. And it certainly helps all of us out to, uh, to do that. And that's what makes, uh, makes it so exciting about Wednesdays is that you drive the content. Um, we don't really pick uh, too often individual things to talk about outside what's in the news uh, as it relates to healthcare, but certainly we, uh, the content is driven by you, our listeners, because you always bring great ideas and great questions uh, to the program. Uh, no questions are, are you know, too, uh, too uh, mundane for us to, to try to go to. may not have the answers all the time, and certainly I hope to point you in the right direction if you, uh, if you call us. The number, that number, again, to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four. Six, four. Another email that we received recently says, can you get tested for pre-diabetes and if you test positive, what medications are prescribed? So as most people know, diabetes is a condition where your blood sugar levels or glucose is another name for it, are elevated. So we need glucose to live. It is a substance that our body utilizes for energy. All of our major tissues in our in our body use that our major organs use that so it's you got to have some degree of blood sugar in there but when it gets too high there's usually two big reasons why one is you don't make enough insulin which is a hormone that helps to regulate that and sort of pushes the glucose into the muscles and tissues and allows them to metabolize it for energy needs and then the other one is you have plenty of that hormone insulin uh, but you, it, there's a problem with um, a resistance to it. So it's not working as well, and that usually goes along with, uh, with obesity and several other medical conditions. So diabetes is not something uh, that uh, there's a light switch that goes on, so usually there's an impairment over time, uh, particularly with type 2 diabetes, um, where you have insulin resistance. So uh, most screening programs now through insurance and through jobs do test for both diabetes and what what used to be called pre-diabetes. So it's not uh, normally it's it's you know that's sort of a uh, everybody wants an arbitrary cutoff to say okay it's diabetes here, but that A1C is an average blood sugar for the last three months. So it's looking back in the past three months. So if we take this month, if, we, if you got it on the 1st of May, it would have been April, March, and February that you would really be looking at um, to see what your average blood sugar was during that time period. And then there's a number. Usually it's a single number, with, and it usually has a point to it. If it's less than uh, 6.5, then that is, uh, you know, anything over 6.5 is typically diabetes, uh, and you could treat it in a number of different ways. Pre-diabetes is in that middle range of having, you know, sort of a normal A1C up to about 6.5. And uh, that's usually an average blood sugar of about 140 is right at that 6.5 level. So if you're in that, that sort of pre-diabetic category, there's a couple of things that you can do. Um, now, the, our listener who emailed us said something about can you take medications for that. You can take medications for that. The first thing I talk about with my patients that screen out um, that um, they um, 
is some things that they can do. If there are some things that they can change about their diet and or their um, their um, eating habits, particularly, uh, I'm sorry, their their diet and then their exercise habits, particularly the exercise habits can be a big help in getting that um, um, uh, blood sugar back down. And uh, in fact, there was a study some years ago looking at metformin, which is a or glucophage, it's a common medication to treat diabetes. And they were looking at pre-diabetics and diabetics, and they compared metformin to uh, moderate exercise, and that could be anything from brisk walking up. And the exercise actually did better at both preventing diabetes in that pre-diabetic group than the metformin, and in treating those, particularly the early. Uh, diabetics. So you can treat it with exercise and with modifying what you eat. So that would be a first step. Um, now, some people do treat prediabetes with metformin or glucophage. That's sort of the mainstay. There's a couple other medications in certain conditions that you might, some of the newer diabetic medications, depending on other things that are going on, if you had heart failure or heart disease um, or kidney disease, but as, as a general rule, if you're in that pre-diabetic uh, group, I would recommend trying to change some things about your exercise level and what you eat. And then if you wanted to try the metformin, that's certainly uh, something that could get the blood sugar down and, and then follow that up over time. So, uh, But that is you know, sort of a concerted effort together rather than just jumping towards medication. You don't have to take medications for that pre-diabetic uh, range. But the most important thing of, of that is actually checking it, um, particularly if you're in a higher risk group, if you already have hypertension, if you have uh, obesity. Uh, those are both two things that you should be um, uh, checking your uh, A1C and screening for diabetes. All right, we're going to go to John from Bentonia. Good morning, John. Thanks for calling. Good morning. How are you? Good. What's your question this morning, John? Well, um, uh, I, I've, I've had, uh, type one diabetes, um, and, and I, I try to emphasize to people diabetes is the plural version of that, um, uh, word, but, uh, I've had that since, since I was age seven. So, you know, oh. for 55 plus years, I've, I've dealt with this sugar monkey on my back and, um, <laughs> And, you know, I, I've done everything from boiled syringes when I was a kid, uh, and, you know, use those one plus inch long needles that were about the size of straw hay. And, um, uh, you know, to, to, in the, in the eighties going to, uh, uh, you know, testing self glucose testing with those wash off strips. Remember those? Oh, yeah. Uh, block yeah. after a minute and look, wait another minute and then look at the color, basically. Um, so anyway, you know, these five second meters are wonderful. Uh, I, I even tried a meter or a, uh, you know, a, a glucose pump, you know, they've never fixed the weak link on those, which is the infusion site, which tends to get, you know, inflamed and, and, you know, after about one day and you're, you're, you're playing with basal rates too much, in my opinion, to make it practical. So, you know, I'm, I'm always, uh, I'm a proponent of conventional therapy, basically. And I, I wish they didn't go to those stupid pins, but they did. Yeah. And you can't yeah, put them for, in your pocket. 
Right. But, yeah, and some, some, so you know, some people, particularly elderly people, the, the pins I think have been a little bit better, just for not being able to draw it up. But uh, man, you you've really experienced sort of the gamut of uh, of the therapies, and certainly a lot of things have improved. Uh, but right. you, you know, one thing that you brought up is important. Like uh, there are a lot of patients with particularly you know with type one diabetes, which would be that. Um, uh, insulin, uh, lack of insulin, um, you know, the pumps seem like a good idea in theory, but you're right. It, it's actually, you have to be much more regimented with those and you can actually get as good or sometimes even better control with a basal rate, as you said, that for our rest of our listeners, that's a, uh, longer acting, uh, insulin that you would, uh, either inject once or twice daily, and then to do shorter-acting insulin, depending on what you eat and your activity, which it sounds like that's sort of what you've you've landed on, John. Yeah, I I did want to have a question here, and and it's oh, sure. it's kind of yeah. it's kind of off the wall here, and I think okay. in in conventional therapy, you know, brittle is the description that was used when I was a kid, and you know, it has stayed with me all my life. Basically, there, there, everything I've tried doesn't really get rid of that wild swing tendency. And you know, a pump was an attempt at that. You know, that made it worse, basically. And and you know, the the newer newer uh, Traceva is better than Lantus, but not much. Actually, mm-hmm. I kind of think Lantus works pretty pretty superior in some fashions not really superior but um works as well as as a Traceva. and and actually humalog works even better in my opinion because it's a little bit slower than than right. uh, a, a a pedra is that the one I, i'm losing track of the names half the time um yep. the, the really fast acting one that 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 acts too fast man you're you're hypoglycemic for your plates even on the table basically so um uh well anyway to kind of smooth this out uh one of the researchers and i can never remember his name uh suggested to uh, uh my uh doctor there at umc um why don't you try uh metformin you know and, and man that that has been like uh a godsend i mean that works um, and and yet I've got type one, you know what I mean. But what yep. does what is the mode of action? I've always wondered what is really the mode of action of of uh, metformin, and is it yep. dangerous to use it? I mean, you know, I've been on it now for ten years, you know, and I yep. and I'm, you know, they they've told me to cut back to you know five hundred per meal, but you know it just doesn't work as well, you know. So I'm I'm still taking the two thousand per day, twice a day, you know, breakfast and dinner. And, um, yeah, yeah it's uh, it, interesting. It, it smooth things I, out beautifully. Seen, right. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've seen some patients, particularly with the, you know, this is one of those areas that I, I, once you get to that point, you're pretty much seeing an endocrinologist anyway, but I've still have patients who are followed by the endocrinologist that I'm seeing. Uh, so that's, I've seen that before in type one, um, diabetics, who uh, are taking metformin and get some pretty good results in addition to their insulin regimen. And, you know, although in theory they know why, there's not really, to my knowledge, it's not been explained, you know, completely. Now, metformin works two different ways. It works at uh, the primarily larger muscles 
and uh, um, uh, to help with that insulin resistance into those. And then also in the liver to decrease uh, gluconeogenesis. And gluconeogenesis is a process where your liver makes more uh, makes more uh, glucose in response to your to your steady state needs that you uh, depend on what's going on, what you're eating, and uh, you know if there's if there's prolonged times of fasting, you need to do that. So it works on both of those. So it may be that it's working more in the liver in type one diabetics and not in the muscle. But I've seen some other suggestions that maybe it's at the muscle uh, site too. Uh, that's a good question for our endocrinology friends because I'm sure they could produce about six different studies. That's what they're one of the things they're good at. Um, but uh, it is, it has been used, you know, with uh, type 1 diabetics who aren't completely controlled. And I'm glad to hear you you found that. The other thing about it that's nice is its half-life is fairly long, uh, that it smooths things out. Um, and, and the term you use for those people who don't, you know, aren't fully aware of that, I think you explained it pretty good, uh, brittleness or the brittle diabetic uh, is a person who has diabetes that uh, that doesn't it it goes up and down. It doesn't have sort of a nice smooth rise and then smooth decrease. It goes up and down pretty quick. And you can go chasing things. One of my, my, the things that I uh, absolutely despise in the hospital sometimes patients will be put on uh, sliding scale insulin, which is sort of treating insulin in uh, in the past on what it what it was. I mean, what the glucose was in the past. So. Um, you know, you can really get to chasing things with that regimen too, but yeah, I, I don't fully understand and know the reasons why metformin works with type one, uh, but it does. And it's not necessarily for everybody, but in combination with the insulin, you do have to still take your insulin with that because there's still, you know, a relative, uh, uh, deficit of insulin, uh, per your needs, but I'm glad you're doing that. Another, another uh, class of uh, uh, diabetics who, who are using this are pregnancy-induced uh, diabetes. So um, it's been used safely now when you're pregnant, um, uh, and uh, that's that's a relatively new one. But it's a lot easier than um, uh, than taking insulin during pregnancy for a lot of people. So wealth of information, John, thank you for sharing that with us. And it uh, sounds like you're doing pretty good on that regimen. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll listen to our uh, endocrinologist. I'll pose that question to him, maybe do a follow-up on that in a subsequent program. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Great questions uh, that people are uh, calling in with and also comments. You can always email us if we don't get to your question today at remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to John in Winona. Good morning, John. Thank you for calling. Doc, good morning. I enjoy listening to your program. And, of course, something that, uh, well, it's kind of near and dear to me as a age on. We start to think about slipping a little bit here and there and, it's not a question of losing our car keys. It's a question of whether we remember we have a car when we talk about dementia of some type, one form or another. You know, as someone who was early diagnosed with dyslexia, is there or have you looked at studies that correlate early cognitive disorders with onset of early dementia or, you know, horribly Alzheimer's, especially if you have some legacy or some, you know, familiar uh, connection. Not yeah. That. yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, you know, learning disabilities uh, or cognitive disabilities early on, some of those have been linked over time. You really have to follow those people for long periods of time if you think about dementia and when it normally uh, affects people. Uh, now, with, in, with the dyslexia in particular, I am not aware of any study, though, that has shown an increase in all-cause dementia or Alzheimer's, either either of those uh, categories. So I don't think that's one that has been associated. Um, now, certainly cognitive uh, declines can be sooner in patients that have uh, genetic disorders uh, that that are associated with um, with learning disabilities. Uh, uh, another one that has not been shown, I don't think, to have an increased risk of dementia is uh, ADD and those types of things. So I'm not aware of uh, dyslexia causing that, although some others are. The biggest thing is making sure that you have, uh, that you're functioning, have really rich social interactions and taking care of your health. Everybody's scared of Alzheimer's and rightly so and want to prevent it, but there's other types of dementia, particularly related to hypertension and diabetes and cholesterol, that you want to take care of those things. So thank you, John. We're going to try to squeeze in our last caller here, Tom from Natchez. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, sure. I've had gout uh, for several years, and, um, I, you know, it's not very often. Usually it's just in the big toe. Uh, one uh, attack started about probably about two weeks ago, and uh, it's worse than ever I've had before, and it spread all the way from my ankles into my knees. And now I've been treated with ibuprofen and diet. I, I read, read, read about the diets. <laughs> and, uh, they're conflicting, by the way. Anyway, uh, most of the pain is gone now, but the swelling is just horrible. I'm, I'm starting to wonder, is there something else going on besides gout? Yeah, Tom, it might. Um, so gout is uh, because you have too much uric acid, which is a breakdown product of, mm-hmm. of muscles and purines in your diet. Uh, and you're right, it can be varied. Um, either you have, uh, either you're an under-excreter or over-excreter of, of, uh, the, of uric acid, and the treatment's a little bit different. For acute uh, flares like you had, um, NSAIDs or, you know, things like that you mentioned, like ibuprofen are, are fine for a lot of people. Some people have to take some things like indomethacin, which is another NSAID that's a little bit stronger, uh, in a prescription or even colchicine is an older medication for that. 
Um, you do, there are some ways to prevent it with a medication that you take every day if those things aren't working. Uh, but if you've had a tech for that long, you could have a secondary infection uh, that's causing that inflammation. You may want to get that looked at by somebody to make sure that's not the case. Um, anytime you can have an inflammation around a joint space from something like gout, you can also have a secondary infection to set up in there just because of that inflammation. So that is something that I would probably get uh, looked at and followed up and maybe even ask them about a medication like allopurinol, which would... Uh, uh, potentially prevent yeah. that. If anybody's ever had a gout attack, right. I have not, thankfully, but it is not something that I would wish on anybody. Right. Uh, do you think, uh, I normally go to this clinic and they don't have an MD, they have a, a nurse practitioner. Do you think she would be okay to go see about this? Yeah, I think so. I think because it's a fairly common uh, you know, disorder, so I think that would be fine. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio, or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app.